Welcome to the No Look Podcast. I'm Rook. On a Monday morning in the fall of 1960, three little brown girls arrived at McDowell 19 Elementary on St. Claude Avenue in New Orleans, excited to begin their first day at their new school. U.S. Marshals were posted up out front as the girls entered the all-white institution, while at the very same time, every other pupil was preparing to walk out. In that moment, Leona, Gail, and Tessie stepped into the annals of American history, unknowingly transforming themselves into civil rights icons, all at the age of six. In this episode, we speak with Leona Tate, one of the members of the famed McDonald Three. We talk about her journey, how she's continuing to fight for justice, and to keep their story alive. As always, Bugaj has the interview. My brother, take it away. So a lot of people know the name Leona Tate as well as, you know, Ruby Bridges and the others who were part of this great integration of the New Orleans schools. So just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about Leona Tate, the person, beyond just uh, that young girl being frozen in time in a photo and video. Just talk a little bit about yourself. As of now or then, how you want it? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of both. Give us a, give us a little biograph. Okay, well, at that time in '60, in 1960, you know, I didn't realize what was going on. I really got to the school and saw the crowd outside, and I kind of thought it was a parade coming because that's what it looked like. And I knew a parade used to pass there, you know. So um, I was never afraid because my family didn't really talk around me to see anything, so I wouldn't be afraid. So. Um, I just wanted to know why I had to go to school on Mardi Gras and everybody else got to stand out and watch the parade, did not recognize that everybody outside was white. And um, we did get to enter the building. We went into the principal's office and we were asked to take a seat. They had a bench in the hallway outside the principal's office. And we practically sat there half the day waiting to be put in the classroom. And um, once we did, School was in session. You got to realize it was in November. School was already in session. Every classroom was full of students. Then. And um, I remember trying to speak to a little white girl, and she ignored me. It was like I, w- I didn't even exist. It's like she didn't even hear me. But see, by 3 o'clock that day, the three of us was the only three in the whole building. Myself, the other two girls were Gail Etienne and Tessie Prevost. The school was empty. The parents pulled them out like a whirlwind. So for a year and a half, we were in that building alone. Every teacher in that classroom with no students except ours. She had three of us. And that's how I was for a year and a half. <laughs> Second grade started off the same way. We couldn't eat from the school. We couldn't look out of the windows. The windows were papered up. The water fountains were turned off. Uh, we never played in the yard. Our play area was under the stairwell right outside of our classroom. And I'm sure that was for security reasons, but um, our teacher was very more motherly. I kind of thought in, you know, that she wasn't from New Orleans, but she was. I know she must have caught a lot of flack um, in her neighborhood or wherever. But she's deceased now, so we can't find that out. In second grade, after the Christmas holidays, 25 other students joined us, but only two students were white. So McDonough 19 had become a black school. 
so the NAACP wanted to keep us in a white school, so they transferred us in third grade to T.J. Sims. Now, this building used to be right on the side of the St. Paul Bridge. This time, we didn't have the marshals like we did at McDonough 19, because the U.S. marshals used to pick us up in the morning and pick, bring us home in the evening, and they were in the building the entire day. But we never saw them during the day at McDonough 19. But we didn't have that protection at Sims. We, we endured a lot at Sims. Um, we were definitely afraid to go in the cafeteria because you, you wasn't going to be able to sit down and eat. Somebody was going to spit in your food or knock it out your hand. Um, you didn't, we didn't do anything alone. That's where our bond started, really started. I mean, we were already close, but we, we had to just stick together at Sims. The three of you? The three, yeah, the three of us. Yeah, it was horrific. And that went on for a while, you know. I, I, um, you know, the schools were integrated, and um, they they knew that they couldn't do really a lot. But the only thing at Sims is the teachers were coercing them to do things to us, you know. So that's what made it so bad. But I lasted there only a year because my family moved in the in the area where William France, and that's where I started fourth grade. And um, still had that white black division, but we had more black students there then, and you could at least have a good day of school. And I can never say through my 12 years of school, I never had a white friend. Junior high school was the same way. We always had that black and white division fighting going on. My senior high school was Francis T. Nichols that was on St. Claude and honored the Confederate flag. Their mascot was Rebels. So you know that was a big division there. Um, in 11th grade, we asked for the mascot to be changed. So that started a lot of fighting, a lot of rioting. Um, it was it was really hard during 11th grade. I mean, it just brought back a whole lot of memories of what could have happened in our early years. And the mascot uh, did just, change at some point, right? It did. It, it, it changed in, in our 11th grade year. It finally changed, but white flight started again. They started taking the white students. Their families started taking them out of school. It, it definitely changed. It's Frederick Douglass now. They've renamed the school, but they still have the same mascot now. It's Bobcats. Let me ask you this, uh, Ms. Tate, now, because you did mention something that, that I didn't know, and I know that some may not know, that you wound up at the same school where Ruby Bridges was at. And uh, mm -hmm. so you all got to know each other at that particular time as well. I knew her before I knew Tessie Gill. Yeah, I knew her already. Oh, wow. So talk yeah. about that a little bit, about, you know, your relationship with all the other young young girls who integrated the schools. Well, she lived in the area where my mother's sister lived. So I guess during the preparation time, you know, because our parents had to attend a lot of meetings, those that were accepted, my mother got to know her mother. So whenever my mother went to meet her, you know, see her sister, we'd always say hello to her mother. So she and I knew each other even before. We went to the schools, and then we went to school together from fourth grade all the way through high school. But being steeped in the history of education and civil rights in New Orleans, you know, just talk about what was your take on as you look around now and you see the educational system, I guess, if you will, you know, in New Orleans, the public yeah. schools. What's your thoughts on, you know, what you all did to integrate the schools and how the public schools now, let's just say, for lack of a better word, are segregated? Yeah, we have regressed a lot, a lot. Um, I think that sparked me to what I'm doing today because I, I get invited to a lot of schools, in-state, out-of-state. And it's it's really heartbroken when you visit a school in, in your own city 
and the children don't know you. But I can go out of town and they know all about it. But that's because they're not being taught. What I want to see is that the schools either at least kind of put civil rights in the curriculum they already have. I'm not asking them to change their curriculum. I'm just asking that they just either put it in the curriculum that they already have or provide a space where they can get that history. They need to see it. I could stand up there and talk till I'm black and blue till nothing was being done. You know, so, so just um, talk about a little bit since you all have acquired this historic building that you had history in. Yeah, I now own McDonough 19 as of January 2019. And we went back and forth with the school board for many years. It took us over 10 years to even get control of the buildings so that we could raise monies to to the good a space where they can get that history. That's what's really sparked me to, to get this building because the school board, it was just sitting there. It had really closed the year before Katrina. But God favored us and we got it. We got the funding that we need. Not all of it, but we got most of it. At least to get the building constructed to our bottom floor is going to be an exhibit space of what happened during the civil rights movement in New Orleans. And the top two floors will be affordable living for elderly, 55 or older. And I want to see the children come in as a field trip. Um, you know, years for years, Gail, Tess, and I just, we didn't even talk about it because it looked like it didn't even matter, you know, to people from that what, what happened in New Orleans. But um, when President Obama got elected president, when that happened, I said, yeah, it's my time. I, I need to do something, get something done with this building. And here we are. Our discussion with Leona Tate continues after these messages. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, located at 2734 South Carrollton Avenue, is the premier barbershop in the city of New Orleans. Founded by the iconic Wilbert and Mr. Chell Wilson, it continues to be the place where one can receive first class service. So today call 504-861-7530 to make an appointment. Mr. Chell's First Class Cuts, continuing the tradition of excellence, service, and giving back to the community. Back to our interview with civil rights pioneer, Leona Tate. You know, you have a foundation called the Leona Tate Foundation. What is it exactly that your foundation actually do? And I'm going to be honest with you. It wasn't my intention to start that foundation. Um, It seems like everybody that I went to talk to about the building wanted to know what my foundation was about. So I felt like for me to get some answers, I needed to start a foundation. And we did. We did. In the community, we got it started. And the foundation is basically about education. We need to educate the public on civil rights issues, human rights issues. We've really done a lot. We have handled food pantries. We've handled after-school tutoring. We're doing an adult education program. And all of this will continue when we get in the big building. But um, right now, we're operating the Lower Night Ward Living Museum, which is strictly about the Lower Night Ward. That'll be moving over with when we move into the big building. Um, but it's, it's just to get the story told. That's what the foundation is about. Get the story told and get it told the right way. The right way. Yeah, I think that's important because I think that as, as I continue to interview people about the history of the city and different cultural mm-hmm. pieces, if you will, that I think sometimes that and I've said this in some of my other interviews, that well-intentioned people may come in and they don't mm-hmm. always tell the story the way that mm-hmm. it needs to be told. So I appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you about something mm-hmm. that you're doing that aligns with that, about telling the story mm-hmm. a certain way. And for you, right. why is that so important? 
Just with the story of the three of us, you know, when I've gone and heard teachers tell it not the way it happened, you know, and people put it in their mind how they want to tell it, and that's the way they tell it, and people believe that. And that's not fair to the children. I really don't think it's fair. We just need to get the story told the right way. And I don't know, I just want children to appreciate going to school just a little bit more than they do right now. You know, it's like charters have taken over and they have their own agenda, which some of them are good, and I gotta say that, but their culture is being lost here in New Orleans. You know, our children came back to Katrina to a culture shock, and it's just sad. And I get a lot of college students coming to do their defense papers for the end of college, and they need to pull this history, but they gotta go all over the world, all over the city and all over places to put one paper together. I wanna put it all in one place where it's there. You need it, it's there. How is it that people can actually help in this effort? What can people in as far as donating money, donating time, donating resources? What is it that people can do to help your foundation? And, you know, since you all have acquired this building, how can people help? Well, we have two websites. They can go on the website and they want to volunteer, they can sign up. They want to donate, they can do that also. Um, we are um, fundraising right now for the exhibits that'll be on that bottom floor. Our website is leonatatefoundation.org or it's the chepcenter.org. And CHEP is short for Tate, Etienne, and Prevost Interpretive Center. I named the building after the three of us, Tate, Etienne, and Prevost. So they can log on to either one of those websites and surely wherever they need is probably right there. As you, because I think that people should be moved to help, because I think that this is an important Mm -hmm. cause, especially as far as the proper education of our our children. Oftentimes they are so miseducated or not grounded enough in uh, the history of the world. So, I mean, when the kids don't really get what they need, then these others oftentimes are as culpable because the kids are just getting what they are given. So when you look around and you actually are on the ground talking to people about your story, how people receive what you are talking about this stuff, you know, young people or people in the community of New Orleans. I know you did speak about what people nationally do, but when you talk to local groups or just local people, mm-hmm. how, they, how, how do they respond to your story? And the response is overwhelming. Um, it's, it's a beautiful response, but you, I'm just surprised at how many people that live here that don't know that story. That's what, you know, really surprises me, but um, I think it'll, 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 it'll be okay. It's getting out there now, and it's hard. It's hard. The children are going to school all over the city, but they can come in, take some workshops, because we are partnering with People's Institute, and they're going to be doing some of their undoing racism workshops, and starting our school for for the community from kindergarten to 12th grade that'll teach on doing racism. So um, our community is just so broken right now too. It's just hard to get that bond back together. But how to do what we, we got to do to try to fix it and get it back to where it used to be. We used to have a village. We don't have that no more. So when you look around, beyond just education, you know, how do you how do you see New Orleans in a post Katrina environment? And um, as far as uh, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic or are you like just hey, you know, a little mix of both? The work we need to do. What's your what's your take on it? Probably both, but um, we got a lot of work to do, especially in the Lower Ninth Ward where we are. 
But we got to work together. We can't work against each other. We have to work together. I don't care who's come in, who's, who's from here. We have to be a community like, like we used to be. And I think if we could get to that point, we can make it work. It's, it's a lot of stuff that's needed here. We don't have the things that our children were used to having in this area. And it's just hard, I guess, financially to do those things. But I think if we come together, we can make it work. But um, that's what it's going to take. And I hope this building will be an anchor for that. And it'll yeah. be somewhere where race, racial healing could be done. And, and that's what I'm looking forward to. I really am. Now, as you look back at your own life and uh, what has it meant to the city, what what is the story of your life? If you had to sum up the life of Leona Tate, what has it symbolized? A long time, Leona Tate was just mama, grandmother. My children didn't know what I had gone through for a long time. And that was just so that they could have a normal life. I know I'm so many years behind to do what I'm doing now, but I just had to wait. I just had to wait till it was the right time. And I I felt like when it started, it was the right time. But a normal life, I worked like any other parent. I worked at the phone company, I worked at the post office, and I just had a normal life for a while. But um, it was years because it was just overwhelming. Not so much as going to school, it was the outside. And Tess and Gail probably could tell you the same thing. We didn't talk about it for years because it didn't seem like it mattered to anybody. You know, it just it just didn't matter. Now we're talking to the public and telling our story, and I think it's 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 going to be okay. Yeah, I would say, uh, ma'am, that. Respectfully, it does matter. You all are part of a history that I think is important that people know your story and and then be inspired by that kind of stuff to be informed, to be educated, yeah. and most importantly, to be inspired to do something, you know, to decide that we have the power to make our city a better city and be, be inclusive and have people, all people at the table making decisions about the things that happen in this city moving forward. Right. And so this school is an amazing thing on a different note because we're a city of food and flavor and whatnot. What is your recipe, if you will, (laughs) for a purposeful and meaningful life? If you had to have a recipe for a life of purpose and meaning, what would it be? I guess it would be a gumbo. We need to we need to all come together and work together. It would be like a gumbo. Definitely a gumbo. And ma'am, is there anything else that you would like to just talk about a little bit before the end that you'd like to talk to people about? Well, my main focus is with our students that they realize that they can do anything that they would want to do these days and nobody can stop them and just just stay on the right track and because the pathway has been open. It, it, it's open. And um, just remember, God chooses on their people and they don't know what's going to happen with their lives in the future. So whatever they want to do with it, to stay full force ahead. Now, Miss Tate, I appreciate you taking the time out and I uh, will definitely uh, try to stay connected with you in mm-hmm. terms of promoting what it is that you are doing in whichever way we can help, we want to do that. I appreciate it. Yeah, when the weather gets bad, if you want to take a walk through the building, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you, ma'am. And, uh, take care. Okay? You're welcome. You too. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening and thanks to Leona Tate, You can find out more about her at leonatatefoundation.org and 
tepcenter.org. That's T-E-P center.org. Please subscribe to get the next episode of the No Luck Podcast. For Bugash, I'm Ruth. Peace.